Chris's Rumble 9 An Irish Winter Solstice Journey Over the years, there have been a number of what Isolde always referred to as Festivus Specials. There was the Crane Skin Bag. I think we subtitled that one A Santa Sack of Gifts from Irish Mythology. It was a light-hearted look at a, a number of really unusual artefacts that I think have a unique place in the stories. You know, like Brian's diving helmet or the Morrigan's monohorse. Check the link on the webpage if you're feeling curious. There was Extolling the Holly. It wasn't a podcast as such, but it did connect to the 15th century version of Fergus MacLager, and I've just reposted that. Or how about a satirical tale of extreme gastronomy? That one was all about some serious overeating. Fair's Fair was an exploration of Oinox, and then there was also the Dagda's Cauldron. There we got to connect the Dagda's famous cooking pot with beer fermentation. But I don't think Isolde and I, or even just me on my own, ever created an episode focused on the winter solstice. The summer solstice, yes. I remember the special Tales of She Beg. Uh, there were photos of the sunset at midnight on the hill. The sun only goes 12% below the horizon in June, so there's a pale glow in the northern sky for much of the oh-so-short June nights. It can be spectacular. And, you know, I always say that there are times in May and June when this is this part of Leitrim is as beautiful as anywhere that I've been in the world. But the winter solstice, uh, perhaps not. It's most often grey, thoroughly damp, and sometimes you need the lights on all day. I hadn't planned a solstice ramble this December, but then two events changed my mind. Firstly, I received a rather last-minute request for some storytelling sessions in the final week of the winter school term. The school in question had just undertaken a project on the winter solstice, and my teacher contact was familiar with my early Irish mythological primary school programmes. She said to me, surely there must be loads of early Irish stories that centre on winter solstice celebrations. I assured her that I would provide some fun, age-appropriate, lively and interactive sessions, but I was kind of thinking to myself I'd have to be a little bit creative. The problem is that the winter solstice doesn't feature much in any of the early Irish stories. I can't think of any stories in which it represents a specific focus. Well, there's the tawn with its musterings, its feasts, its battles, both victorious and defeats, and even its other world adventures, but they don't specifically reference the winter solstice at any point. Bealtaine, and particularly Samhain, are mentioned quite a lot. The Ectoranera is the perfect example. You know, the opening section of the full story definitely points to some quite interesting early Samhain customs. There's the pouring away of the grey water. Now, that's clearly important, although... It may have been part of a preparation for the Nykaus in general, rather than just at Samhain. Samhain customs and folklore and how they relate to events in the mythological story text is a topic I, I, I would really hope to return to, but not for now. Moitura, 
which does have a metaphorical dark winter of toil and trouble until the land is redeemed and greened with the return of the Glasgowan. Uh, yes, there's that, but there's no suggestion that the return is connected to the winter solstice. I've even undertaken a basic search of the Nidinalicus poems, but I can't locate specific connections offhand. Now, I could be wrong. I might have easily missed something relevant. Of course, any sharp-eyed listeners who are sharing this ramble with me might by now be shouting out the name of Oingas Og. Um, if you are, please be patient. You may have glimpsed a clearing closer to our destination. And yes, we will be going that way. But when I was preparing the storytelling sessions for the school, just out of curiosity, I decided to, well, try out a general Google search for Grianstad Givre, you know, the winter solstice, just to see what would show up. And this is where the fun began. Here's a small selection of my gleanings. Now, I'm not going to name the sources for any of these quotes, my intentions is not to criticise or, or comment on any specific site. I just wanted to take a sample of what is, how do I put it, most readily available. Well, here's the first. It's headed, Where does the celebration of the winter solstice come from? The celebration of the winter solstice has its roots in many cultures worldwide, particularly the Celtic tradition, where Druids, wise women and men, would cut the mistletoe that grew from the oak tree and offer it as a blessing each year. Here's another one. What is the winter solstice in Irish mythology? Well, according to an old Celtic myth, on the solstices of each year, the Oak King, representing the light, and the Holly King, representing the dark, would fight, with the Oak King emerging victorious at the winter solstice, enabling the return of the light. OK, here's, a, here's the third. Why did the Celts celebrate winter solstice? Well, ancient Celts believed that the sun stood still for 12 days during the month of the solstice. This belief influenced the Druids and their Yule Log ritual, which we still celebrate to this day. The Druidic priests would burn a large oak log over the 12 days that the sun stood still to usher in the power of the sun. And the fourth. The Celts were known for their deep connection to nature and the cycles of the seasons, celebrating the winter solstice with elaborate rituals and festivities. One of their prominent ancient sites associated with the solstice is Newgrange, a prehistoric monument in County Meath. Well, this is really a pick-and-mix selection. Perhaps we should begin to unpick it and examine some of the somewhat random ingredients in the mix. It's not that the information is wrong, it's just, well, how can I put it? It's rather like a wall painted over so many times that it's now impossible to tell what colour it is or ever was and that any texture or pattern it once had is completely lost. Well, let's start with the first one about the mistletoe. Now, the image that still appears either on the page or in the mind's eye is generally, even today, a figure clothed in a voluminous white robe decked out in what looks like a Bronze Age lunula and brandishing a large, shining golden sickle ready to slice a clump of green mistletoe from a venerable oak tree. Now, it might be plenty who could take the blame for this. 
A druidic ceremony described by this curious and inquiring Roman in his natural history describes a white-robed druid climbing an oak tree to cut down mistletoe with a golden sickle. Now, it's perfectly possible that the evergreen plant with its white berries thriving on a variety of trees, not necessarily oaks, could have held quite a lot of significance. The golden sickle is perhaps less likely. I'm not sure it would have worked very well. There is, though, one difficulty when it comes to Ireland. Mistletoe is not a native Irish plant, and even today it's rarely found. Customs connected to mistletoe in Ireland are kind of limited and probably recent. The quote also refers to druids. Now that's another heavily overpainted segment of our metaphorical wall. And I really must remind myself that the topic of this ramble is the Irish winter solstice, but I have to mention something about druids, their origin and reputation. Now, the quote that I read does get one thing really right. It's generally accepted that the etymology of druid comes from a word for wise rather than oak. And yes, there were women druids. They are well attested in, in early Irish texts, however they're named. There were plenty of classical authors who mentioned druids, of course. Strabo, for example. He asserted that the Celtic religious leaders were similar to certain Greek philosophers. Now, he doesn't actually name them as druids, though. Julius Caesar remarked that they engaged in things sacred, conducted the public and private sacrifices, and interpreted all matters of religion. He also commented that as leaders of rituals and judges, druids had the authority to bar people from participating in community events and that they could withhold privileges. That sounds a bit as though he is trying to describe the results of an Irish poet's satire. However, he was probably most likely annoyed by the effective manner in which they could network between rival tribal groupings, who, without the wise poet officials, tended to be fairly useless at cooperation. Here's another one. Editora Siculus reported that Gaulish Celts have philosophers and theologians who are held much in honour. He also commented, Often, when the combatants are ranged face to face, when swords are drawn and spears are bristling, these men come between the armies and stay the battle. And of course, Druid is only one of the many names they were given. They were described as heralds, seers, law and law, L-O-R-E, keepers, and much more. But somehow Druid was the name that stuck. And as this group became trivialised, fantasised or even demonised in later time, their staffs signifying their qualified status became magic wands and their poetic judgments became mere magic spells. Druids had become magic makers, or, I suppose, wizards. But there is one other thing. Much of what I've just said could equally apply to the highly qualified Irish feely. But though Caesar and Claudius in his term were well aware of Ireland, they had next to no influence here and never colonised the country. Isolde's remarks about Irish druids, I think, are also relevant. Now, she'd researched quite thoroughly into the training and titles of the Irish feely. 
I remember her commenting that both bard and druid were titles, in fact, for unqualified poets, more like entertainers than experts. She always felt that as the very high status of the Feely began to fade away and the schools were replaced by monasteries and so on, the unqualified poets continued to be known as they travelled round among communities and that their titles became, well, the norm. It does make sense. I think Isolde discusses this on one of our Q&As. I'll check that out and add a link on the podcast webpage. However interesting as this may be, it is a sidestep, so back to the main path. Now the second of my Google search findings, yes, this is interesting, it's probably easier if I read it again. Here it goes. According to an old Celtic myth, on the solstices of each year, the Oak King, representing the light, and the Holly King, representing the dark, would fight and the Oak King emerged victorious at the winter solstice, enabling the return of the light. You know, something similar came up on several sites, but I'm really not at all sure of its backstory. In my last ramble, A Story for Our Time, I did mention an event where our community arts group, Hit and Myth, was asked to produce a Battle of the Flowers performance. This was based around a battle between the winter and summer kings, but this took place in May at Bieltona. I suppose the idea does have something in common with the themes of mummer's plays, uh, often found in the UK and also Northern Ireland. Mumming plays, which often involve a fight with death and resurrection, were commonly associated with the winter solstice. And certainly the straw men tradition is still quite healthy in Ulster. But I suspect, to some extent, the Holly and Oak King battle are probably very recent interpretations which have kind of caught on. I was trying to find a way to see if this this idea of the Oak King and Holly King could connect with any characters from Irish mythology. Now, one of the many names of the Dugda includes a word that is generally translated as stern, but it could have an association with the word for oak. Descriptions of the Dugda's boundary-making club, though, don't include the name of the wood it's made from, which is a pity. As for Holly King, Holly's always been an important tree and rightly connected with midwinter customs. It's a good burning wood, green or seasoned, unlike oak, which burns fiercely but gives off a lot of smoke if it's burned green. According to the poem in the 15th century of Fergus MacLager, um, it says, Fiercest heat-giver of all timber is the green oak. From him may none escape unhurt. By partiality for him the head is set on aching, and by his acrid embers the eye is made sore. And it's also surprising that holly isn't one of the five noble trees legally protected under early Irish law. So, this one could be a new tradition. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. I like new traditions. But I do like to be able to see the path they've taken in their making. So, back to my pick and mix selection. Now, this is the third one, and I better repeat it now. Ancient Celts also believed that the sun stood still for 12 days during the month of the solstice. 
The Druidic priests would burn a large oak log over the twelve days that the sun stood still to usher in the power of the sun. <laughs> so now we have the Yule log included in Irish winter solstice tradition, so I hope those Druidic priests didn't burn green oak. Uh, yes, strictly speaking, Yule is an old English word and largely cognate with its Norse equivalent. And there's plenty of Norse influence in Ireland, of course, especially in the East. But, of course, the Yule log has long been popular in Ireland, often with three candles burnt on top. And even keeping a piece of the log until the following year has been going on for a very long time. And why not? However, I don't know whether this goes back to the Iron Age Celts. Uh, might do. There are several stories where it seems that fire, especially on hills, is very significant. I was thinking about the importance of the lighting of fires on the hill of Ushnok, but this custom was definitely associated with Bjeltana, and it still is. So what about the 12 days? Now this is more interesting. The word solstice comes from the Latin sol, sun, and sistere, to stand still. This is because at the solstices, the sun's declination appears to stand still. However significant this is, it's not something that is particularly obvious, even though we now understand why it happens. And the effect doesn't last for 12 days. But what we do notice, especially in the west of Ireland, is just how little daylight there is on the shortest day. It's not much more than seven hours in late December. And it's often so grey that it feels less. But still, the idea that the days are now going to get longer, even if it's hard to notice at first, is a real lift. In fact, on the last day of December here, sunrise is at 8.51am and sunset at 4.10 GMT. <laughs> that's, that's a short day. And yet the concept of a midwinter event lasting 12 days is tenacious. As far as I'm aware, it began as an attempt by the Council of Tours way back in 587 to find a way to link the Western and Eastern churches which celebrated Christmas on differing dates. The Western Church celebrated Christmas on the 25th of December, the Eastern Church celebrated on the 6th of January, also known as Epiphany. Christmastide, the 12 days, linked the two. And each of those days were assigned saints or holy events, and three of the days were also designated as fast days. By medieval times, the final day, known as Twelfth Night, had become perhaps the most popular and certainly the most secular of these feast days. In some parts of Western Europe, including England, celebrations involved the setting up of a Lord of Misrule, who would subvert all the usual status restrictions. This custom, it does seem to be a direct descendant of the Roman Saturnalia that was held sometime in late December. I think it was the 17th, or the equivalent of the 17th. Now, this permitted slaves to disrespect their masters without a single threat of a punishment. It was also considered a time when free speech was not only allowed, but encouraged. <laughs> the theme of the 12 days of Christmas is still regularly referenced in decorations, greeting cards, and of course, the song is still sung. 
It's a term that people recognise as Twelfth Night, although only the lucky few and my son and his family in Australia expect to have the whole time off. However, most people will not be aware that before the Industrial Revolution and that general migration to work in towns and cities, that people in the countryside, apart from maintaining the care of animals, outside work tend to stop for Christmas tide. And Irish midwinter customs continue to be celebrated over the 12 days for much longer than a lot of other places, and there are some distinctive elements. Some years ago now, I published Candles in the Window, a book of Christmas customs and memories transcribed from a group of older people in Longford nursing homes. And what struck me then was just how many customs and practices had survived into living memory. I still have the original draft pages, so I will set up a gallery on story archaeology, although I won't publish the names of the contributors. None of them talked about the winter solstice, although there were still some relevant pieces about other days over the Christmas season. The first custom that was discussed was the real importance of preparation before the event. This included a thorough cleaning of the home and whitewashing all the buildings inside and out, often with lime from local lime kilns. The Christmas decoration that was most commonly remembered was holly. No one remembered seeing mistletoe, and some said they had never had Christmas trees. Here's a quote. I'd never seen a Christmas tree, not in the way they decorate them today with all those lights and everything. i never seen them in any house. If you did, you'd be wondering what that big tree was doing in there. One or two of the contributors remembered that Christmas Eve was a fast day, as was officially St Stephen's Day. Christmas Eve was a fast day. It was the fast before the feast. A lot of people didn't eat meat as a preventative to the fever. Sometimes it was kept to a fast day, the day after Christmas. That was a fast as well. It would keep away all diseases. They didn't have a lot to say about Christmas Day. Remembering back to when they were young, many of them recorded as a bit staid and boring, although they did talk enthusiastically about Christmas parcels from America. You're not supposed to go out on Christmas Day. It was a dull day, Christmas Day, and Christmas night. On Christmas Day, you didn't have visitors. People would stay in their own houses. They wanted to talk about Wren Day, 26th of December, Lord Rolin. The run, the run, the king of the birds, St Stephen's Day was caught in the furs. Up with the kettle and down with the pan, give us a penny to bury the run. The story was that on this day a chirping wren gave St Stephen's hiding place away and the unfortunate saint was captured and martyred by Roman soldiers. Now that does sound like a retrofitted excuse for an old and uproarious party. And it does seem to have been the party night of the year, especially for young people. One elderly man told me, Oh, St Stephen's Day was a wonderful day in Ireland. Oh, it used to be. That was the day of the run, boys. Music and everything. Oh, it was lovely. It was a good day. One lady looked into her memory, smiling somewhat wistfully. You could dress up. You don't want anyone to know you. You could go out on the road, have a little song, pretend you're carrying the little robin. You know, sing, and they won't know you. You don't go into a house that knows you. But when you're dressed in a man's suit, you have to be very careful because, well, you know... You'd steal men's clothes and everything. One of the versions of the song does connect the wren to the holly. Droolin, droolin, where's your nest? Tis in the bush that I love best. In the tree, the holly tree, where all the boys do follow me. However, 
I'm not sure this is going to provide evidence for a Holly King. I really think it has quite a different subtext. But the young people back then clearly had a great night off, a real once-a-year night. However, the celebration of Lordraline has mostly died out. Young people have much more freedom to celebrate whenever they feel like it nowadays. I spent quite a few Hogmanay nights up in the finals of Scotland back in the 80s. The customs connected to the celebrations are quite different, but I suspect the parties were and are much the same. Before I leave the Irish 12 days Christmas-tide customs behind, there's one more I should mention, and that's the 12th day known in Ireland as Little Christmas. It was also celebrated as Epiphany and with the memory of the Three Wise Men, but Little Christmas was kind of special. Little Christmas was the women's Christmas. We, the women, are supposed to do nothing on Little Christmas. The men do it. We could do whatever we like. That was the old tradition back then, in the 30s, 40s and 50s. I asked them, did the men cook for you? But I was told, oh no, there were plenty of leftovers. In one group there was one somewhat grumpy elderly man who tended to dominate the group. And when I asked about Little Christmas, he was the first to respond. Oh, there were a lot of women who didn't want the bother of it. Those days was busy enough. It was carried out by some people, but not many. They'd had enough with the 24th and 5th and 26th. They were glad to be rid of it. So you can see why Little Christmas may have died out. However, on the day of the launch, when he was giving, given his copy of the book, he looked through it carefully and then turned to me and said, I don't know where you got all this from, but I can tell you there's not a word of a lie in it. Well, at least he was ready to stand by his own words. There's a lot more I could add, but as I've mentioned, I can upload a version of the booklet. Perhaps now it's time to examine the last of my pick-and-mix selection. I'll read it again. The Celts were known for their deep connection to nature and the cycles of the seasons, celebrating the winter solstice with elaborate rituals and festivities. One of their prominent ancient sites associated with the solstice is Newgrange, a prehistoric monument in County Meath. The thing about this statement is that it's composed of two sentences, presupposing connection between the two. Let's just accept the word kelp for now. It's accepting a people or tribal groups of people who understand the importance of their relationship with the land that supported them and who held regular seasonal events which contained performative elements as well as organised ceremonial feasting. I find nothing to argue against there. But the second sentence leads us into a completely different world. By around 7000 BCE, the Mesolithic Irish settlers were, were hunting animals, especially wild pigs, gathering wild plants and shellfish and fishing in lakes, rivers and seas. Uh, the surviving evidence is scanty, but some people think that the first settlers arrived maybe as early as 9000 BCE. By around... 4000 BCE, the first farming settlements had been established. These were probably farmers who had travelled bit by bit from Anatolia, uh, eventually arriving as far as Ireland. The, the, the farmers lived in rectangular timber houses and used pottery bowls for storage and cooking, as well as arrowheads, blades, knives and scrapers of flint. But these farmers, they were the people who were able to collaborate, creating great megalithic monuments, including the Brunaboyna. That's the reference, that winter solstice monument in County Meath. 
In 2020, a paper was published demonstrating that DNA evidence gathered from remains in Newgrange and from more than 40 people buried in other Neolithic sites, including three passage tombs, supported the evidence of a close-knit elite. That was a surprise. That, that, that they were working together so far away all around the country of Ireland. But whatever their social organisation, they were certainly not Celts. It gets even more complicated. Somewhere around 2500 BCE, a new metalworking people arrived in Britain and in, and in Ireland. These were the Beaker people, and again, DNA analysis has come up with some surprises. It seems that there was, at this time, an almost complete DNA replacement. The megalithic builders seem to have declined for some reason, and by the time of the, the Beaker people arrived, were effectively wiped out. Was it climate change, or had they just become exhausted with extravagant collaborative building projects? It's quite a mystery. But for the purposes of this ramble, they were definitely not Celts either, and possibly Iberian. If there was any incursion of European Celts into Ireland, then this would have been around 500 BCE. And it's generally now thought to be more of an absorption of Celtic styles and above all language rather than of DNA. It's for this reason that in our podcast conversations, Isolde and I always referred to continental Celts, insular Celts and the Iron Age Irish. Irish mythology has characters and stories that are not found and do not seem to be derived from either continental or insular sources. Indeed, there are signs that influence went the other way, but in some ways I could be accused of splitting hairs. Certainly the culture of Iron Age Ireland was Celtic. It's equally mysterious, though, and recent archaeology, especially geophysical exploration, is unpacking surprises all the time. But again, that's another story. So, going back to the pick-and-mix quote, there's a great gulf between the first and second sentence. Yet it is to those mysterious megalithic builders from around 5,000 years ago or more that we have to look to for the true marvel of the winter solstice in Ireland. At the start of this ramble, a bit of a distance away at this point, I mentioned that there were two reasons I decided to set out on the topic of the winter solstice in Ireland. On the morning of the solstice this year, I awoke around 7.45am and switched on the laptop that lives in my bedroom. It was a grey old morning here in Leitrim with not a hint of brightness coming through my windows. However, I still enjoyed a very special solstice sunrise experience as I watched the full live stream of the rising sunlight entering the chamber of Newgrange. I think the live stream has only been available since 2020, but it's a great idea and the best substitute to winning one of those limited golden tickets and being inside in person. It was magical, although clouds on the horizon kept us waiting until the 13th of the 17 minutes in which the phenomena can be viewed. Newgrange and the other monuments of the Brunaboyne complex are astonishing examples of what careful long-term observation and immense collaborative effort could have achieved in Ireland more than 5,000 years ago. Look, this is not the time or place for a detailed description of the Boyne monuments. I would recommend going to newgrange.com, the winter solstice page, where you can find images, videos and reports from most of the last 20 or so solstices. Or you could go to mythicalireland.com for excellent in-depth articles and images. 
All the links can be found on the Story Archaeology webpage for this episode. I remember seeing pictures of Newgrange when I was in my early teens. I was enthralled with it then and hoped to visit one day. Back then, the images showed me a somewhat tumble-down grass-covered mound with an old iron gate. However, the intricately carved stone at the entrance was clearly visible. Yes, I always wanted a visit, but didn't have the chance until I transferred to live in Ireland in 1990, and that was long after Professor O'Kelly's excavations in the late 60s and early 70s. Now, I know that the renovation was controversial, and I was kind of surprised when I first saw it. But it's impressive, and I like it. Of course, it was O'Kelly who rediscovered the light box through which the solstice sunlight can enter the chamber, However, it seemed that an oral story of sunlight entering the mound had survived locally, even if somehow the tale had become attached to the summer solstice instead. We can do no more than speculate about the manner in which these monuments were used 5,000 years ago. Forensic investigation has demonstrated that they were used for burials, both individual inhumation and collective cremated remains. And clearly, it must have been a very great number of people who gathered together to construct these monuments, and it must have taken a considerable amount of time. We also cannot know if the labour was freely offered or coerced. But what is also unknown is if large numbers gathered together at the solstice, whether they watched the sunrise from outside or whether perhaps the solstice sunlight only entered through the opened light box for the benefit of the ancestors and viewed only by them, perhaps linking them once more to the living. However, watching the effect that viewing the event still has on everyone who witnesses it, it's difficult to believe that people didn't want to gather together back then, at least outside. It's equally difficult to imagine that the careful observers, perhaps the architects of the structures, did not fully appreciate the real significance of this sunstop, the solstice. As I said earlier, there is a great time gulf between the megalith builders and the Celtic-styled status-hungry cattle lords of the Iron Age. And yet, almost impossibly, there may be strands of story lore that have, well, somehow bridged that great time gap. There are just the hints of a ghost, of a memory, remaining in poems collected in the metrical Dinhianicus. Now, I've mentioned the Dinhianicus many, many times before, of course, but to Briefly recap, the Dinhianicus, the Law of Place Names, is a class of onomastic text forming a collection of early oral material curated in or around the 12th century. Now, although the date of the written compilation of this material is clearly post-Norman, it seems absolutely obviously clear that the poems contain many, many very ancient oral story elements that were thought to be worth preserving. But could they preserve anything that far back? 
I want to invoke a couple of these Din Hyanaka's poems at this point. To quickly sum up a part of the two Din Hyanaka's poems of Boand, these tell that there in the Brunaboyne, the Dagda comes to Boand while her husband is away and she bears him a son. This is Oingus, the young son, so named because he was conceived, carried and born in one day. The Dagda stops the sun in the sky to protect Boand from discovery. There's no suggestion that this occurs at the winter solstice, but the significance of the sun stopping in the sky is notable. There is a second Indianica's poem that involves the stopping of the sun in the sky, but this focuses not on Newgrange, but on the nearby mound of Nokva, possibly meaning Nut Lament, and now known as Nath. There are two versions of the origin of this mound and its 18 smaller satellites. The first refers to the site of a burial mound for Boer in the Dinhyanakas, the wife of Lu. Yes, the Ildonok from the Moitura epic. This is the one that explains the nut lament etymology. But it's the second version that includes the Grianstad, the sun stop. In this version, Bressel, his full name means something like uproar, son of cow destruction, and, and he's something of a tyrant. He demands that the men of Ireland build him a hill as high as the Tower of Nimrod, all in one day. His sister uses her poetic powers to stop the sun in the sky in order to help the workers with their impossible task. However, Bressel rapes his sister and the incestuous assault causes night to return and the mound remains unfinished. It's a strange and intriguing story, but it raises a lot more questions than I think it answers. The east-west orientation of the passages at Nath suggests astronomical alignment with the equinoxes, although because of some later changes in the, at the site, it's now not really possible to verify if these alignments really existed. These awe-inspiring structures, once they fell out of use, would have continued to dominate the landscape, becoming more magical and more mysterious on through the centuries. Now, they might have been explored occasionally by the curious, the brave or the foolhardy, but they would have continued to be places regarded as set apart and otherworldly. There have been a few early Bronze Age burials found uh, located in Irish Neolithic passage tombs, and the ancient monuments would surely have continued to feature in story and landscape myths. In the Iron Age, beginning somewhere around 500 BCE or so, perhaps a bit earlier, there was clearly still a high level of nervous respect for these mysterious hollow hills. Cremation was generally favoured in this period in Ireland. Nevertheless, Iron Age and early medieval inhumations have been discovered in Neolithic mounds. For example, 14 1st to 3rd uh, century Crouch burials were found around the main mound at Nath, although isotope analysis of the teeth suggests that some of them may have come from northeastern England. Perhaps more relevant is that some of the most important Royal Iron Age early medieval sites, such as Awanmakur or Rathcrohan, were established in sites with very rich prehistoric landscapes. 
It's hardly surprising that the feats and exploits of their most important ancestors and culture heroes, like Angus, like the Dagda or Mither, were, were elaborately woven into these places. But could thin threads of ancient memories passed down like bright sparks from a far distant past have been somehow embroidered into the tales? Is it possible? Well, maybe. If the story of the existence of the lightbox at Newgrange could survive in local oral folklore, well, I suppose it could be possible. Having had time to talk to Professor Patrick Nunn, who's written two books, Edge of Memory and Worlds in Shadow, concerning the humoristic nature of landscape mythology and the length of time it can survive, look, I don't want to talk about it now, but you'll find links to our conversation and the links to Patrick's fascinating and informative books on the webpage for this podcast. There's one more path I still want to follow. If there were memories of the solstice practice at Newgrange, why is it that the winter solstice doesn't seem to have any real significance in these Iron Age, early medieval tales? Well, as the poets of the Dinhelicus would have responded, not hard to answer. It may be largely purely practical. The winter solstice comes at the coldest, often wettest time of the year, with the fewest hours of light. Uh, that's kind of obvious. It's the least attractive time of the year to go travelling around the country to regional gatherings. I mean, it's true that the climate may have been milder and a bit more dry 5,000 years ago. And we also know through recent DNA evidence from Neolithic passage graves that there were elites across Ireland around that time with familial connections. But that doesn't necessarily imply that large numbers of people travel to Newgrange each winter. As I said earlier, it's a really nice idea. But that solstice sunray might well have been only for the ancestors. Now, the tight tribal structure of an Iron Age early medieval society meant that gatherings of different groups, each with its own local king or queen, had to be carefully structured and managed with feasts, gift-giving and competitions, games and racing. Midwinter would have been a difficult time to travel. Uh, the climate grew colder and wetter after around 500 BCE, according to results of pollen and tree species analysis. And there was a very, very bad period for a century or so, starting around the 540s CE, owing to a series of volcanic events which caused years of crop failures around the world recorded in Ireland. And this was followed by two major epidemics of bubonic plague, as bad, if not worse, than the Black Death epidemics of the 14th century. There were some challenging times which actually may well also be reflected in the early Irish stories. Besides that, there was no end for to Dublin back then, and even now where I live, uh, a deep frost is enough to prevent any vehicle other than a tractor getting off my hill. It's hardly surprising that the Oinox generally took place at Bieltana, Lunasur or Samhain. And traditionally, the time between Samhain and at least Imbolc was the storytelling season. And there it seems something of that custom has certainly survived. 
Now, this has been a longish ramble, and I think it's time that we found a vantage point where we can see the landscape of our journey before heading home. When I started to put this article together on Christmas Day, I thought it might be just a quick wander through an interesting topic, but as usual, there are so many possible paths to follow. At the start of this ramble, I randomly selected four responses to a search for winter solstice customs in Ireland. Each response was slightly different, but each answer altered my search to Celtic winter solstice customs. Well, I suppose, of course, uh, back around 4000 BCE, there were large numbers of independent tribes, all loosely labelled Celtic, living in Europe and parts of Anatolia, mostly identified by the use of a wide variety of Celtic languages and with some cultural similarities. That's kind of France, most of Spain, parts of what is now Turkey, all very, very different places. However, most gradually lost their distinctiveness under the rise of the Roman Empire. Now, I know I may be splitting hairs again, but when most people hear Celtic, they tend, quite understandably, to think of Wales, Scotland and Ireland, maybe Brittany, rather than Spain, Switzerland, Slovenia or France. But every country has its own journey and its own story to share. Winter solstice folklore will have developed differently in Wales, Scotland and Ireland, not just nationally, but regionally. Well, no, locally. And customs are still constantly changing and growing, forming new fusions and new unique individualities. The label Celtic Winter Solstice Customs is just too general to be useful. In fact, while facilitating a story-sharing project in the county of Longford just a few Decembers ago now, I had the pleasure of sharing Christmas stories from Romania, Belarus, Czechia, Poland, Slovenia, Ireland, Nigeria, Korea and England. All in one classroom. Yeah, it was huge fun and I learnt a lot. But the Irish winter solstice offers something more. It offers observers in the 21st century the chance to share an experience designed around 5,000 years ago to happen at this one place and at this one time each year. And thanks to our 21st century technology, we can share it in a way that would have been impossible back then. Only a very few may ever be fortunate enough to win the golden ticket, which will take them into the chamber of Newgrange Mound one winter solstice morning. But all of us can share the magic of the live stream without travelling and from anywhere in the world. And that really is a great way to share an Irish winter solstice. And there's just one more thing I wanted to suggest. The sun may not stop in the sky for the 12 days of Christmas, but there is a stop that might be worth reviving. On Twelfth Night, Little Christmas, the women of Ireland would stop and take a well-earned day off. Now, whether you were born here or, like me, were born elsewhere, would this not be a winter custom worth bringing back? What do you think? Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children 
as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>